we are live. Welcome to another episode of the New York Information Security Meetup. And I have the great pleasure to introduce uh, Sajan Gutam. He's the CISO and, uh, uh, for Avers Bank. And uh, uh, Sajan, thank you very much for joining me. Much, much appreciated. I know you're very busy and you have a lot of things going. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Much appreciated. How are you doing? Doing good. Hey, uh, thank you, David. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm so excited to be talking to you. So I looked at your um, your uh, trajectory of of your career, and I have to say this: you are the poster child on how to you know advance your career well in cybersecurity. You started as an analyst, you progressed uh, as a consultant, and you are now a chief information security officer for for you know a prominent bank. Talk to me about that. Was that intentional? Or you kind of like just you're, you know, you are hardworking individual. You've you've done all the right things, and you've kind of like advanced yourself. What was kind of the the process to advance yourself so well? And you've again, you've done an amazing job, you know, uh, advancing to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. You've done it really remarkable. So I'd love to to hear a little bit about about that. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. I, I would think that is some. Some part intentional and some others are accidental. Uh, just like I did not plan my career to be a CISO. That is not how I started. I started like, hey, uh, I want to learn this. I want to learn that. So this is a curiosity than anything else uh, that was driving me. So I got interested in the infrastructure. I get interested in the database. I get interested in all these things. So that's how I moved around. And all this consulting gig, uh, I did even... And did a small startup, which did not work out well, but that was all because of the curiosity, nothing planned. But then at the later part, you know, I started planning a little bit more too, because I did have some great mentors who helped me like, hey, you need to go and learn this thing. So I went to like executive educations and all those things. So it was both mix of all. But so Jan, a lot of people are curious and they don't necessarily, so, you know, there's one thing to be curious, right? To say, okay, this is interesting and uh, kind of glance over it or like not make the investment. But it seems like you, you were curious, but then you decided to take that curiosity to the next step and actually learn the underlying, you know, the, the of things of interest here, right? What yes. would you say that was the kind of the driving force behind that? Because again, I've seen like you've, you've done the certifications, um, you, you know, you've done the education, uh, you know, so, and you mentioned database, you kind of glance over it, but you became really proficient. So it's not just the, oh, I'm curious. You've decided to take the next step and, and really um, make the investment. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that where, you know, because they say, okay, well, I'm curious about it, but they don't go through the process of actually, you know, making the investment and learning it. Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, some of the things is like, uh, I do also have that tendency. Sometimes I do scrap the service for like a month and then decide like, hey, this is not me. But most of the things that I'm curious about, I try to stick with at least a year before giving up, right? So if I wanted to go into like data loss prevention, I'm not just going to read on that for a month and then give it up. I want to invest some time and then give it up. Uh, so I think it all depends on the person and the interest. Uh, in my case, it is in a lot many things. I'm truly interested, truly 
curious about and then try to dig deeper than just giving up. Maybe this is something the engineer in me inside that's like, hey, I want to know more. I want to go a little bit deeper. So that could be it. <laughs> I do not have the Do you think it's part of your like upbringing, like in terms of like where you grew up and how you were taught, like when you were, um, you know, just growing up and maybe your parents or you have influence from somebody else? Yeah, that could be it. That could be it, right? Because I grew up in Nepal. Uh, when we are going through a lot of these changes, right? So sometimes democracy, sometimes anti-monarchy, sometimes, you know, the communism and all these things, uh, the revolutionists and all. So you have this kind of like survival instinct a little bit, and then you say, oh, this is where I need to find out. Uh, this is the route I should not take. So something could be that, but I could not, Exactly, pinpoint. Yeah, so, so you grew up in uncertainty, basically, just in terms of how, how you know, the political situation, but also, you know, and, and I think I've, I've seen that a lot. So curiosity is something that is embedded in a lot of people, but it's a lot of time is, uh, you know, it's the necessity of it all, right? So how do you, how do you establish yourself? And you knew you had to have that drive. And if you look back at all the different roles, is there one in particular that comes to mind, like it's impactful in terms of when you knew this was the thing for you, right? Because not everybody, when we when we start a career, we go to school and then we take kind of, kind of the first, you know, the first first role, maybe second role, and it, it's not necessarily like aha moment. You kind of just go with the flow. But at a certain point, I think a lot of people realize, okay, this is something I really enjoy and I can be really successful in. Can you pinpoint maybe like one or two roles that you've done that you kind of felt that that was kind of the turning point for in your career? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I started uh, right out of college. I started in the networking. So I was very specific doing like networking stuff. And then I started doing identity and access management, very specific into it. And then also dabbled in the uh, data loss prevention, databases and all those, those areas as well. But uh, something that, um, make me connect the dots between all these things we're looking into the frameworks and standards and all because those are horizontal function right because when i was always looking into the verticals like identity and access management network data loss prevention and all those are certain verticals but tying all this together from the strategic mindset was looking into the standards frameworks and all what helped me even further is Around the same time, I went back to my graduate school uh, doing MBA focused on the finance. So that means like, oh, now how can, I, how can I connect the risk management into all of this? So, so why should I even do this thing, right? So each of those areas. So I think that could be the turning point. Mm -hmm. And when you, you were hands-on a practitioner, Right. Do you think do you feel that really help you uh, connecting the dots? A lot of people are, you know, even this, uh, you know, when they become, uh, you know, senior level management, they they find themselves relying very heavily on others because, you know, they technology advances. So, you know, so fast and you, you don't you can't keep up with, you know, being proficient, for example, and all the network protocol and all the, you know, the DLP, the latest and the greatest technology. But you find that really helped you like to, to have that mindset as a practitioner? To begin with, yes, abs yeah, absolutely. Because uh, at the at the end, I'm the technologist at heart, right? So I want to get all this, like how these things work, uh, and my 
staff, they are careful enough not to give me access in all those things because <laughs> one day I'll just go there and start to encourage them. So yeah, I think that that does help. Do you do you catch them sometimes by surprise? But how much you know? Uh, I do not think I have caught them by <laughs> surprise, but I'm always curious, right? I'm always walking on the hall and then start asking about the situation. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting, and I and I find curiosity and again the the ability to learn and be a self learner, because it's like it's like you know there's all this information is available to you, but unless you go out and seek it, it's it's not, you know, it's not trivial again to to gather that information. So uh, let's talk a bit about kind of like the 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 current roles, right? Like you've you've advanced to to the become a chief information security officer, which is a I would say the pinnacle of, of this profession, right? Um, because you're now responsible for all aspects of the security of the organization. And then you also communicate that to, to leadership. There's a lot of moving parts and, uh, and a lot of it is, is on the job training, right? I, I don't know if there were any, you know, CISO schools, right? So you have the fundamentals. You've, you've kind of, you know, have gone through the technical training, the, the, the academic training, but there's really no CISO school. How did you, uh, when you first started, you know, how did you kind of like, what were your kind of first 60 to 90 days? Do you remember like, you know, all of a sudden you, were, you wake up one day, you have the CISO role, and now you're responsible for all, you know, aspects of security. What was kind of the first thing you've done uh, to, to make, sure you're, make sure you're successful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do have a really, I mean, even though we do not have like CISO, CISO school, uh, but we do have like CISO executive education, right? So some of the education that I got from like um, Carnegie Mellon CISO program, that was one aspect of it. But at the same time, I did have a really good network of peers, the practitioners that I can simply pick up the phone and then they do help me out. And then I do also have mentors, my bosses from prior work, at the same time, some of the other mentors outside of my work. So. They helped me out. So we are a pretty close-knit community, uh, information security is. Uh, on top of it, uh, if you think about the information security practitioners within uh, financial organizations, those are even more closely-knit. So if I do have a problem, I do have at least 10 people that I can call, and they would help me out, any type of problem. So even though we do not have this like formal type of education day to day, uh, those are available. And then some of the others like Forrester, Gartner, and all those things were helpful as well for 60, 90 days problem. And, and, and it's pretty incredible as well. You know, even building that network of, of advisors and, and people that are, uh, that you can uh, consult with and have that lifeline to call when you need help. How did you build that? Because again, I think a lot of people are struggling with that. Uh, they don't. Ask, they don't want to ask for help. Uh, they move on to another role and don't necessarily keep in touch with the folks that were in the previous role. What steps did you take to to have that network available to you? And how do you keep in touch on a regular basis? Because we're so so busy all the time, and people I think, you know, forget to. They only call you when they need you, um, and and you can't do that when you have somebody who's, who's you know you are. Um, you know, it's kind of your mentor. You have to be in touch on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, afraid of recommending a book here. <laughs> I'm not, but give and take, if you haven't read that book uh, like from Adam Grant, that has been one of the guiding principles for me as well, right? So 
before building the network, uh, I do not even think about building the network. It's more like, hey, how can we contribute to the profession, right? So give and take. So when you contribute something, if you get something in return, that's great, but you do not start uh, your network by thinking like, oh, what can I get from somebody else? It's like, okay, I just want to give it out to the community or contribute to the profession. In that, like, in that journey, if I do get something out in return, then better, right? So that's how we started. Uh, and I think that is how the security professional is. A lot of the other security professionals uh, do the same thing. When I do reach out to them, they do not think that I would be able to pay them back. They just give it out. So it's like pay forward kind of thing. Yeah, amazing. So, in, but it's so two things I can I can hear that. First of all, it came out naturally, right? You didn't think about building the network. It completely happened naturally, right? Throughout your career, you basically kept in touch with people that you you thought were, you know, were wanted to help you out and be part of your network. And then it was a it was a it was a give and take. It was a trade off, right? So you are when you call somebody or you have them uh, in your kind of roster of 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 people that you can you can confide with. They're, um, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship, right? So it's like, it's not just you asking them. It's also, I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's two-way street. And what would you recommend for people that are like listening to this conversation right now and they're like thinking out of their, you know, out of in, in their head, how can I build that network? Um, you know, and they may not be as senior as you, but, you know, a lot of, I think anybody can, can use, a, you know, a couple of mentors or people that they consult with. What would be the easiest way to, to start with? Yeah, I think uh, the... One suggestion would be start with giving, or start with contributing, like how can I contribute to the profession, right? Because there are so many people needing the help. So if we start contributing to the community, contributing to the profession, uh, I think the payback will come like, sooner or later. Uh, I think that's, that could be the best approach, I think. Yeah, no, it's an absolutely excellent. And there's so many ways to contribute, right? Whether, you know, doing some of these podcasts, whether, you know, presenting, uh, you know, maybe, you know, creating blog posts, uh, you know, GitHub or whatever the case may be. It's, it's, it's all available out there if you wanted to, to give back to the community. Um, and then, by the way, you are giving back right now as, as part of this interview, because I think a lot of people are fascinated when they, they hear, you know, the kind of the, the title. But they're not not really clear in terms. There's a lot of unknowns, and a lot of people. You're so busy that people cannot knock on your door and, and start have you know asking those questions. So so you're essentially just giving back right now. So let me let me ask you this question. Um, so you've seen a lot of changes happening in the industry, uh, specifically around um, security leadership, right? And you know, it's I remember when when cybersecurity was not front and center at all. It was, you know, it was kind of, you know, backstage and now it's becoming more front and center. Even, you know, CNN, CNBC are starting to, to interview CISOs and so on. Can you talk to me about what um, what became harder through that, you know, throughout those years in the past, you know, three to five years and maybe what, what became a little easier? Yeah. Um, one thing, I mean, like I always start is what other things become easier, right? So as you said, uh, cybersecurity uh, has been on leaders' minds like most of the CEOs, boards, and all those minds. So it is, is easier. So cybersecurity is accepted as one of the biggest priorities areas lately. So that part is easier. A little bit of challenge to move into like 
technology is changing very rapidly, right? Uh, so security is not simply looked at from the risk management pers um, perspective, but how can we leverage those new technology for business benefits? So that becomes challenging. So now the CISO is not simply the risk management person, but the technologist as well. So you may have noticed a lot of the CISOs going into the technology or becoming CTO also, because they are so much ingrained in the technology. So that part, always continuous learning thing. And, and, and Sajad, like, one thing I mentioned is specifically for financial, right? Yeah. Financials uh, traditionally have seen as like this, you know, traditional, slow, slow moving organization, but it, it's not really the case. There's a lot of quick moving uh, innovation in finance. And we see that even every day, even though we're not, you know, don't have preview to it. Like even, for example, using mobile app in different ways, uh, doing banking and so on. Right. So can you make the comment in, in terms of like, you know, you are kind of the enabler of that business because any any technology that the bank needs to adopt from a from a business perspective has to be reviewed by you, and and I'm assuming that it's, again it's a two way street where they come to you and ask you know what are your thoughts about you know enabling this type of feature in in our app or our you know platform and so on. Can you make a comment on, on that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We we have seen that happen now more than ever, right? Because the banks have to now compete with the fintechs. And the fintechs have a very short cycle of product delivery and all. Now to be competitive, we have to do the same thing. We cannot take forever to evaluate the product. We have to know the myths and bits of it. So that has changed considerably in the last few years, right? Because if you think about the financial cycles in 2013, 2014, uh, at that time, there were so many new regulations, financial, like cybersecurity regulations came in from 2012 to 2017. So the CISO's mindset and CISO's energy were spent on regulatory frameworks and all those things. Then luckily the harmonization, the framework harmonization took place. That means now CISOs do not have to spend that much time on mapping the frameworks and all focus more into enabling the businesses. So that's how we can be competitive with the like, FinTech giving us a steep competition. So it's a good thing, right? Uh, from that angle. Yeah. yeah, it makes things exciting, you know, and, and yeah. I think finally they see you as, a, as, as I mentioned, it was, it's not security that is, you know, butting heads with the business. Uh, a lot of times they even, I've seen even like some organization are saying, hey, we're, we're more secure. This is why you should do business with us. So it's now becoming almost like a, a business feature. How secure, how well secure are you? You know, how do you, uh, how do you, uh, you know, keep the, our data private? You know, who do we share the, the data with and so on, right? So, yeah, so sorry, I cut you off uh, in terms of like, you mentioned these are the, you know, the things that got a little easier. Anything that got a little harder? Uh, yeah, it's the new technologies and always being able to be on top of it. And then giving like, how can we deliver fast? Uh, and again, going back, so that is one, like the pace of change. Another is the model itself, right? So a few years back, we are not as much focused on delivering everything through the APIs. 
uh, through the microservices and all. Now everything is delivered through the microservices, <laughs> APIs and all. That means so true. Now, now security people have to be very good on evaluating the whole technology stack, uh, evaluating the code base, uh, so the infrastructure as a code, security as a code, and all those things. So those are getting a little bit harder in terms of like keeping abreast of the technology, learning, and all those things. Yeah, the, you know, one thing you touched upon was the rate of change, and I think, I think, and again, maybe you can back me up, but I think it's accelerating, right? If, if uh, you know, five years ago, you could take your time and deploy something to the marketplace, the new technology, um, and review it for 12 months, 18 months before you go to market. What are we talking about now? It's like, it's like what, three months, four months before you, before you have to deploy, before you run? I mean, the, 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 the time to go to market is really shrinking. Yeah, two to three months if you are lucky, right? Wow. Because we have to, yeah, we have to think about like, a continuous integration, continuous delivery, right? CI/CD pipeline, and how can security not be the bottleneck on that CI/CD journey? Uh, yeah, two to three months—that's a long time. <laughs> that's <laughs> incredible. Delivery. Yeah. yeah, that's incredible. If if you would have taught, you know, t- talk to someone in like you know five, five, eight, you know, six years ago, and you told them that you you were review, well, plan, review, and deploy in three months, two three months. It will tell you, oh, you're crazy, right? It's like, you know, that's impossible. But now it's, it's, it's the way of the nature of things. And so, uh, let me ask you this. You have this unique perspective on kind of cybersecurity and then also the financial ends of it, right? In terms of risk management, because you, uh, you mentioned you've, you've, uh, you went through, uh, you know, academic training, but also you have all the hands on training. Um, what are kind of the, from a risk management perspective, what are kind of the, the hot, issues right now that practitioners are facing? Yeah, absolutely, right? So um, one thing that uh, jumps off is the value of security versus cost of security, right? So how do you quantify the risk, the cybersecurity risk? That way we can spend appropriate dollar amount. That is always a hot, hot topic, right? That's a new hot topic. Another hot topic is let's say there is a risk and how much should we buy the insurance for? What should be our appropriate premium? So sometimes what happens is there's a risk and if something happens, this loss exposure is significantly high. Now, are we not supposed to do the business or should we continue to do the business but protect ourselves with some kind of insurance, cyber insurance. So that is becoming a hot topic. How much to buy? What is our appropriate premium? Uh, so those are becoming a hot topic for, at least for us in the financial industry. And from your perspective, you know, let's dive into a kind of a little deeper. So um, what does that mean? Like, you know, how do you actually, you know, it's a, again, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. How do you quantify? And again, when there are so many moving parts in organization, right? And there's so many different, uh, you know, um, processes in the, in the bank, you know, how do you do quantify like what, you know, where to spend the money again, because uh, there's uh relatively speaking, there's limited budget with quote unquote unlimited risk, right? And you as a, as a chief information security officer, the, your, your goal is to minimize the risk for the organization as much as possible with the, with the funds and resources you have available, right? So 
how do you then uh, decide um, to, again, what you just mentioned, like, you know, where to spend the money, you know, what actions to take and, and uh, you know, what areas of the business should you consider protecting first or invest more into, into protection and what areas of the, of the business that can you like, you know, put in the back burner or not, at least not spend that much uh, effort? Yes, uh, I think this is where CISO has to work with the businesses and the CFO organization, uh, like very closely. It starts with cyber loss exposure, right? So let's say you do have 10 different business units and then hypothetical scenario, if one of those goes down, what is the loss that we are talking about? Obviously, with the businesses on that. There are multiple avenues methods that you can do. One is simply starting with this exercise, workshop session, asking a set of questions, and then narrowing it down, right? So starting with the crazy answers, like if something goes down, uh, it's like $20 million loss. And then it's like, how confident are you on $20 million loss? If you have to do it's like 90% confidence interval, would it fall between 20 million or it would fall up to 30 million. So it's a lot of Delphi technology, Delphi methods that we do go through, like calibration exercise and all those things. Then it is, I mean, you do come up with the uh, kind of uh, workable answers. Uh, it is no different than a lot of the other businesses use. So for example, even on the interest rate risk, even on the market risk, the method is almost the same, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, businesses allocate the money, businesses buy the insurance based on uh, some of these hypothetical scenarios. That happens in the interest rate, that happens in the currency and all the risk, right? Uh, so it's no different. If we adopt the same method, uh, the businesses understand too. Because if I do quantify cybersecurity risk, in a totally different way than how rest of the other risk are quantified. Like mm -hmm. non-cyber, rest of the organization would not understand it. So we need to follow the same pattern. So that's how we start. And it's so interesting that because that that is fairly new to be able to, to take that, um, as you mentioned, you know, run those scenarios and quantification from other areas of the business, but apply that to cybersecurity. That's, that's fairly new. And history... In the past, you know, two and a half years really taught us that even the crazy scenario, like having a, you know, full-blown pandemic, which mm -hmm. is, was not, I don't think that was, you know, there was like a, an outlier, right? I mean, so John, I don't think anybody thought that they have to work from home within, within two weeks, you know, basically shut down all operations that, on site. And that was an outlier. That was a, almost like a, one of those black swan type of event that nobody ever, for, you know, foresaw. And wow. that needed to be, to be forecasted. Right. I don't know, because I, I do not. Um, so pandemic at this scale may be an outlier, but if I'm a part of like business resiliency uh, part, like cyber, pandemics should have been thought about, right? Because at least in our business resiliency plan, uh, we had pandemic as one of the scenarios. Did we anticipate this pandemic to last two and a half years? No, we did not. But we have thought about it. So a lot of people get the excuse saying like, oh, this is a black swan event. No, it's not. 
I mean, as a cybersecurity professional, you need to think about this. No, it's brilliant. I, I, uh, and and um, so how do you communicate that to the to the executives, the business, right? So I'm assuming you, you get asked all, all the time, like how we, you know, how are we doing as a company? You know, are there any, and, and I'm assuming again, because you're the executive responsible to business, uh, you know, uh, every time there's something on the news, you know, for like latest, you know, uh, whether it's Kaseya or, was, you know, whatever it's like, you know, like all the other like uh, you know, vulnerabilities out there, you get asked or Log4J, you know, all of a sudden you get the phone call from, from you know, maybe the board or the executive asking you. Um, how do you communicate that? Uh, like when there's all this like unforeseen events and when you get to ask a question, you know, how are we doing from organization? Are we protected? What's that looking like for you? Yeah, so uh, there's no hard and fast rules. So those are some of the things that you establish the cadence and understanding with your executives. Uh, in my case, we do like, hey, this is the regular cadence. The regular cadence is every quarter, we do talk about the risk, we do talk about the landscape, all those things. So that's a quarter. So that's a, almost like a cadence, the communication cadence. And then the yearly annual communication that is more like uh, more detailed overview of the things. But there is there are some like one-offs. So log for the Kashia and all those, those are one-offs. Uh, so those communications depends on who your audience is and all. Sometimes in our case, it's just a few bullets saying, hey, this is what's happening. Uh, we do have this level of confidence. Uh, we are affected, not affected, if we are affected like this. And these are the things that uh, we are going to do. So it's like nothing more than two to three minutes reading time. I think that has been sufficient. Uh, uh -huh. But in some cases, like very deep, uh, detailed, it's like pandemic response and all those things that required bigger communication. Do you sometimes have to make a, like a tough um, conversations with the executives? For example, maybe you know, making them aware that there's certain things that they need to do in order to maybe, you know, get a little bit more budget or whatever the case, because it's not, this is what people don't understand, you know, being an executive, it's a privilege, right? Uh, you know, you're, you have the prestige, but, but you, um, you carry a lot of responsibility and there's a, sometimes some tough conversations, some tough things you have to deal with on a regular basis. And it's not all like, oh, this amazing, you know, the Lego movie, like you come into the office, everything's great. There's, you know, maybe can you share like without providing some details, like where, you know, there are any times where you actually had to either explain or, or maybe some do a pushback for something or, or you know, um, or maybe stay in ground or, or certain topics? Yeah, there is. There are, there are a lot many times we have to do that, right? So. Uh, some of the examples are like, if new projects have to move really fast, and if we are not doing the due diligence uh, fast enough, even though I want to go really fast, uh, there may not be enough time for us to do the due diligence on it. That is when we need to push back. Another is uh, pushing back from the story and the cases, right? So, yes, there is a reward of going very fast. But what if these things do not pan out? What is the risk that we are talking about? So there are situations like every CISO's face uh, with the businesses telling, uh, giving them like, hey, this is where we need to slow down. Uh, our job is 
uh, not just on the value creation. Of course, we would like to create the value, but primary job is value preservation. So one small mistake would be tremendously like impactful in terms of like devastating, right? So those are the things that we need to clearly let out. This is great, but if these things happen, we will be in a worse scenario. So those, uh, a lot of the storytelling yeah. needs to happen. Uh, I'm still learning that part. <laughs> Yeah, and and no one wants to be on the front page of any, <laughs> not for for that for those reasons for sure. And tell me a bit now, like you know, just in terms of current events, there's a lot going on in the world, right? We we you know the conflict in in Ukraine has really uh, made an impact um, in the supply chain and in other areas of the business. Um, do you? Do you get asked, like, in terms of, like, from executives, example, like, you know, what, what does it mean to us from, from a, you know, a risk perspective for cybersecurity? Yes, absolutely, right? Those are some valid, uh, so some of the things like supply chain risk, because that would impact the business. And at the same time, that may have unintended consequence on our security posture of it, right? Because all of ours are vendor dependent. And not uh, even though we want to get this uh, software bill of materi materials and all those stock, we are not there yet. We not we are not able to scan all the code, right? I mean that's the reality. I'm not talking specific about our thing, but that's the reality. Uh, in those codes, we have to go some kind of leap of faith. That is when we just like, hey, this is a risk, but I think we can take that risk, right? So that is one part of it. Another is the communication about ransomware and all those things. And it's always touchy uh, because that does come with a lot of risk. And then, but at the same time, the reward is not immediately, right? Because you cannot say like, oh, uh, if we do it, spend this much money on ransomware prevention, uh, I can guarantee you, guarantee you 100% that we would not have the ransomware situation. Yeah, and, and it seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, previously about insurance companies. It seems like there's a lot of areas of, of change, like in terms of cyber insurance, right, in terms of quantifying that risk, especially when it came out to, I think what made a pivot for those uh, insurance companies was the ransomware situation where they, yeah, they, some of them were trying to get out of, of or putting some clause in there that does not allow for for ransomware payout. Um, in terms of insurance and where cyber insurance is going, you know, when when um, if you take the, the car industry, for example, right? So in order for you to insure your vehicle, the, the vehicle had to be, you know, uh, at certain standards, right? So it has to have... Uh, you know, seat belts. It has to be uh, like maybe ABS from after certain years and so on. Do you find that that was going to happen in the kind of the cybersecurity uh, or the the industry as a whole? Or do you have to be compliant and follow certain guidelines for cybersecurity in order for you to get insured? Yes, absolutely. That has already happened, right? So uh, it is insurance market now. Uh, the insurance premium has risen quite a bit as well. So there are certain standards that you have to maintain to get a really good insurance. Because a lot many times, insurance companies will not even insure you if you do not follow certain. So some of the things like 
uh, multi-factor authentication. That is almost becoming a standard. If you do not follow, uh, if you do not have a multi-factor authentication on your certain um, channels, you do not get that. Uh, service accounts or the elevated access, how many service accounts do you have? That will impact. Some of the other things is like the, your patching cadence. Uh, do you have a lot of vulnerable machines? Do you follow some certain kind of configuration management standards? So those are becoming kind of like a uh, commodity if you are seed belt. If you do not have that, forget about getting the fiber engine. It's, it's super interesting. So, and it seems like the, the, the attack surface So this, you know, we talk about supply chain a little bit. Um, so, organization like yours, you know, deals a lot with vendors and partners and so on, right? So, you know, how do you, A, how do you protect yourself? Like, because again, it's uh, it's not just your organization, it's all the partners and so on. So, you have like a, like a larger attack surface. And then the flip side of that is that how do you leverage those partners to, to be more secure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now without going into the specific about yeah, of course. my organization, I would say like this is how a lot of the organizations do, right? It's not specific to us. Uh, looking into the third-party validation of their processes. So that is one, right? So and another is third-party assessment of the of your vendors. Uh, third-party assessment, not simply like those sock type but more detailed. Yeah. Uh, have they checked the configuration? Have they checked other type of things? So they can, uh, you can even get this, like the reports, right? So the bit side, looking glass, pan arrays, and those kind of reports that does tell you the posture of the like uh, customer facing or the public facing enterprises. So that does also help identify some of those things. Um, yeah, but we are not there yet in terms of the like, whole, like, software bill of health, court signing, and all these things. Yeah, and it's interesting because it's, uh, you know, again, this is such a fast-moving target, even for that. You know, the way we we operate as a business has also changed in the past, you know, few years. A lot of things are being outsourced now or, or you know, becoming any, any non-essential business function is being typically moved to someone else, to a partner. And that creates a, quite a complexity, uh, and we see that now with the, we, you know, with the kind of the, the Ukraine situation. That a lot of things that are you wouldn't think that they were manufacturing in China, in, uh, in Russia and so on, or or, or Ukraine. There's, and even from an IT perspective, how many how many Ukraine-based developers and companies are there? The service like you know American companies as well. Um, last question: I talked to you. You mentioned a bit about um, information sharing with peers and and. Uh, you know, within uh, within the business, uh, how do you um, how do you do that on a regular basis? How do you leverage that as, as an organization? Yeah, there are um, multiple. Right? So, um, information sharing uh, outside of the organization and inside of the organization. Outside of the organization, it has improved significantly with the ISAC, right? Information uh, sharing and coordination council. We have like multiple ISACs, so especially the financial act is very active, the information sharing happens. On the organizational side, within the organization, I'm not going specific to how we do here, but in a lot of many other organizations that I know of, uh, it is internal information sharing is still not very mature yet. Uh, let's take an example. Uh, if I'm in a fraud organization, 
I may get a lot of the data, a lot of the information. And then uh, I may not think those are contextual and I do not share that information to information security. But those are very contextual information for information security coming from a different channel. Uh, that we do still have an opportunity to make that better. Uh, there are some of the concepts like you know the fusion platform and all, uh, big data vault, data born, and then sharing the information across groups, across teams, uh, in a secure manner. Uh, those were already done in the financial services information sharing, con in coordinating councils and all those things. That needs to happen within the organization as well, as well, right? So if information security is looking something, physical security is finding something, fraud is looking at something, or uh, physical security, I mean, all those are different channels. How do we share those? Uh, that is still an opportunity for us to look at, and that keeps us exciting on this thing. Yeah. So, and so then this is kind of like leads me to kind of the last question and which is a great segue. So there's always going to be opportunities in cybersecurity. Uh, it seems like this industry is ever evolving. There's a lot of money involved, uh, from, uh, you know, venture capitalists that are investing and you, you dabble in some of that. You are, um, you know, I think you were advisor for some VC firms and so on. Um, what do you see uh, from a trend perspective in terms of like where where is the investments going today? And by the way, this conversation is very unscripted, so yeah. whatever you answer is it's, you're doing a great job. Um, so, in terms of a v VC money for for cybersecurity, what are the kind of the, the fastest emerging areas where they invest, and where do you see this industry going as a whole? It's, uh, it seems like there's thousands of vendors out there, uh, all competing for kind of the similar you know, type of budgets. Um, what's your take on it? Yeah, uh, this is just my guess. I think uh, IoT might be one area uh, because that is some of those areas. I mean, not invested enough, I think. Uh, so the venture money would be going into that. Uh, that is my guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you see any consolidation potentially like happening in the industry because of this? Is so many vendors out there competing for the same dollars? Yeah, there has to be. So some of the, um, not necessarily on the IoT and all this space, but some of those old legacy uh, information security tools and all those things, right? So for example, uh, old firewalls. Like, uh, I grew up in networking. I mean, that was my first thing. And the first job was like, oh, managing the routers, firewalls, and all those <laughs> things. But that does not exist anymore because firewall is not the first thing that should come into your mind when thinking about security. But if you talk to somebody who, who grew up like 20 years back on those, the minute you do say uh, security, the first tool that comes to their mind is firewall. Uh, that is not true anymore uh, because perimeter is dead, right? Because we are in a perimeterless organization or perimeterless world. Uh, <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah. And, and then are there any exciting technologies that, you know, that are kind of futuristic? I know that, um, you know, we flaunt like AI a lot. We, we say machine learning and, and automation, orchestration, a lot of that is, you know, any, anything that excites you that comes to mind since you're, you're so much in touch with what's going on? 
A little bit. I mean, uh, I'm still learning uh, more on the deception technologies. Because uh, deception technology is used, I mean, both AI, ML is used in the deception technology, right? You cannot use the static technology to create the deception decoys and all. So that is one of the areas that I'm trying to learn more on. Um, I do not know much about it, but those are some of the things I'm learning. Well, I have no doubt you're going to investigate to, uh, further into that space as well. And then what about like, um, you know, AI assisted, uh, decision, uh, you know, decision systems, right? There seems like there's this areas of, 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 uh, development. And we've seen that in medicine, for example, where practitioners are using, uh, AI, you know, for, for making decisions. Do you, do you feel there's some areas that, Potentially, a CISO like yourself can can get assistance from a from a uh, AI supported system. Yeah, absolutely right. So a lot of these tools we call it like XOR. Uh, do those tools claim to be AI assisted? Uh, and they are right AI, and they are. But are we mature that? Uh, I think there's still a room for maturity there. Uh, but that would be exciting. Right, because that would tremendously reduce uh, our time, cost on evaluating and decision making and all those things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, me too. And so, John, thank you very much. I know you're super busy. I wanted to really thank you for, for spending the, the past 40 minutes with, with us. Um, what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you, if just uh, maybe for learning more about you, maybe about the company, or maybe some advice or mentorship or whatever the case may be. I know you're super busy, but what's the easiest way? Yeah, the uh, most easy way might be the LinkedIn. Uh, mm-hmm. I do not use Twitter as much. Uh, so the LinkedIn might be the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to potentially seeing New York sometimes. You know, I know you you travel quite a bit. Maybe uh, at some point in time our path will cross and, and I can have you in person in the uh, one of the monthly events. So until then, I wanted to, again, uh, thank you very much for, for uh, making this happen. Much appreciated and looking forward to uh, seeing you sometime soon. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for uh, this great conversation. Appreciate thank you. It. And thanks all for joining. Uh, much appreciated. I'll see you at the next event. And until then, stay uh, safe online as well as offline. Sure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.